Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Jewish women have consistently played a vital and significant role in American history more broadly, and American Jewish history specifically. Through a variety of different ways, from engaging in social activism, working outside the home, creating women's organizations, or managing their households, Jewish women forged their own path and inserted themselves in the fabric of American life and history. In her new book, America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today, Pamela Nadell tells the stories of America's Jewish women, from the first Jewish women who arrived in the United States in 1654 to the very well-known Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the many women in between. Nadell's study utilizes a variety of archival sources and oral histories to stitch together the rich history of America's Jewish women. Pamela Nadell is Patrick Clendenin Chair in Women's and Gender History and Director of Jewish Studies at American University. Hello, Pamela, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. So you have written written extensively about American Jewish women throughout your career. So what makes this book different from your previous work on Jewish women? That's, That's such an interesting question because I see the earlier books that I did as building towards this book. This book is a broad synthesis with new research on the history of America's Jewish women and the earlier works, especially like Women Who Will Be Rabbis, my earlier book, laid the way on a narrow issue for me to think very broadly about how I would present this great swath of history to a wider audience. Wonderful. Um, At the beginning of your book, you outline how one particular scholar asserted that, and I'm quoting here, ordinary women had little chance of entering into history other than as appendages to famous men, end quote. So throughout your book, you tell the stories of ordinary and extraordinary Jewish women. And I can imagine that locating the stories of ordinary women can be challenging. So how did you go about overcoming that methodological hurdle? And why was it important for you to include the stories of ordinary women throughout your book? One of the things I'd like to say is I I try in the book not to call them ordinary because I see them as women who left very deep imprints, but on much smaller canvases among their families and their neighbors and their legacies live on, but we don't necessarily know their stories. One reason that I could capture them is not only that archives have certain very important collections of private letters that were written that these women never would have imagined would have been open to um, anyone other than the the person they sent them to. But more importantly, also, as I get closer to the contemporary period, we have some extraordinary oral history resources. And one of the women that I decided to focus on, Rose Pines Cohn, who lived in Baltimore, I had an oral history of hers that ran for over 100 pages. And I could capture her story through that. So somebody who might never have written... um, a memoir, and so we wouldn't have known about that woman, but because of oral historians, we know quite a bit about some of the women whose lives left an imprint on smaller canvases. 
Wonderful. So throughout your book, you tell the stories of many women. Um, was, there, was there one woman in particular or several women's stories who you, who you through your research, unearthed and felt really passionately about telling? I, I definitely think so. Um, sometimes as a historian, I used sources in an unconventional way. For example, um, when I'm discussing a woman who lived through the Civil War on the northern side of the conflict, I write about Carolyn Hamlin Spiegel. And Carolyn Hamlin Spiegel was descended from a, a Quaker family that had come to America in the very early colonial days. And she married a Jewish peddler, as so many Jewish men were. She married Marcus Spiegel, who had come from um, one of the German states. And she converted to Judaism for him. We actually have a copy of her conversion certificate. And I don't have her voice, but I have his surviving letters that he wrote to her. They were ultimately published. He, he eventually became a colonel in the Northern Army. And I could hear her voice through his letters. So for example, he would write and say, I'm sorry, you're feeling blue. Well, that meant that she had written that she was feeling blue and he would advise her about how to handle the farm, for example, without him. And I could hear that she must have written him with her concerns. So as a historian with that particular kind of historian's training, I could tease out of unexpected sources, the voices of women. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. Do you, did, do you happen to know what happened to her letters? I Her letters just didn't survive. He he apparently saved them. Um, they actually it, it, they were passed on down through the family. They were found, I believe, if I remember correctly, in a box in an attic or a suitcase stuck in an attic. And the family had saved, because she had saved his letters, but the letters that she would have sent him probably died with him because he was killed in action in the Civil War. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Um, a recurrent trend that you trace in your book is Jewish women's propensity for activism and protesting social injustice. And this isn't unique to the contemporary period. You trace this throughout much of American Jewish history. So can you elaborate a little bit more on the various ways in which Jewish women have engaged in activism throughout American history? That I think is one of the, the great finds of the book is to talk about and to understand the way Jewish women were activists almost from the very moment that they set foot on American soil. Um, sometimes they were they were activists simply in their minds, the way they thought. For example, Abigail Levy Franks was um, an observant colonial Jewish woman, um, lived in the 17th um, uh, century, 17th, early 18th century. And Abigail Levy Franks was at one point actually is writing a letter saying, Judaism needs to be reformed. It's filled with idle superstitions. And if a, quote, Calvin or Luther, end quote, would rise, she would be among the first of their followers. So there's that that impulse to activism, I think, goes back to the earliest days where we really see Jewish women becoming activists is in the way that they reach out to help those who are less fortunate in their communities. And already by the first decade of the 19th century, Rebecca Gratz is working first with Christian women in her community to help um, in, uh, immigrants and the poor who are coming into their community, and then ultimately founding a host of Jewish women's organizations to help those who are less fortunate. And then I, the impulse is the same, but then 
by the end of the 19th century, Jewish women begin to mass in larger organizations to address much greater social welfare problems. So I see that I see that thread running all the way through um, the history of America's Jewish women. Um, was there one particular form of activism or, I guess, um, activist agenda that you discovered while doing your research for this book that was new to you? I don't know if there was, if, I don't know if there was something that I discovered that was new to me. I think it's how I began to understand the activist agenda. So for example, many historians have written about either the National Council of Jewish Women, an organization founded in 1893, the first of the great national Jewish women's advocacy groups, or they've written about Hadassah, an organization founded in um, 1912. And they they never kind of put them all together. And one of the things that I noticed when I was researching the book was that there's actually this very narrow window between roughly 1893 and the early 1920s when the great powerhouse Jewish women's organizations that still exist today, in addition to National Council of Jewish Women and Hadassah, the um, national arms of the various um, synagogue sisterhoods, and there are others as well, and they all came forward at roughly the same time. And then I began to ask questions, why? Why had this happened? I understood that they were reflections of the diversity of America's Jewish women, but I also wanted to understand what was it about that particular moment in American life that was propelling America's Jewish women to create a host of organizations that still exist until the 21st century. So what was that moment? What was happening at that time that propelled these, or I guess maybe inspired the foundation of these movements? I, I, th- I think there are a number of changes. The first one is actually a physical change. And that is that in 1800, um, white American women typically had seven children. By 1900, they have three and a half children. In 1850, white American women were living an average lifespan of under 40 years. By 1920, their average lifespan was 57 years. It's easy to do the math. Fewer children, more years to live. There became opportunities for activism that hadn't existed before because of, of the lifespan and the fewer demands from the home. There's also, of course, what's going on historically in the United States at that time, and that is that ultimately the the movement for women's suffrage climaxes and ends successfully in 1920. And the years from the 1890s forward, you see a great acceleration in its activism. And the activism is not only around suffrage. The activism actually morphs by the 19-teens into what um, is then called feminism. Feminism... The way we would use it today, that that's a word that comes to be used only in the 19-teens. So I see kind of a structural change and a wider social change going on. And they, they propel Jewish women forward to create something uniquely Jewish in response. Right. Um, since you've mentioned um, feminism and, the, and um, women's suffrage, would you mind sort of elaborating on Jewish women's role in, in these two particular movements? Jewish women were extremely active in, um, in campaigning for the ballot, and but their story was by and large not particularly well known. There's a terrific historian, Melissa Clapper, who's written extensively about this. Uh, they, 
in, in the early wave of the woman's suffrage movement in the 19th century, um, there, w- there was one Jewish woman who um, was, was particularly well-known in that movement. But by and large, that movement was a movement of well-to-do white women who distanced themselves from immigrants and from people of color because they didn't want the men who would have to give them the vote to understand that they might also be granting these, quote, less desirable women to have the vote. Um, Then Jewish women become much more active in the suffrage movement um, among these different constituencies in the in the late 19th and the early decades of the 20th century, but they don't, by and large, have a very large, I would say, large national presence. People wouldn't have known their names. But for example, Hannah Solomon, the founder of the National Council of Jewish Women, she knows Susan B. Anthony, and actually they go to a, a conference together in Germany, and she translates from the German for Susan B. Anthony. So their stories are there, but they were pretty much buried And then in terms of the feminist movement, um, Jewish women are present during that first wave of feminism in the 1920s, but again, not among the really well-known names. The great transformation is when we get to the second wave of American feminism in the 1960s, where Jewish women are disproportionately represented in its leadership. Um, both on the national level, on the local level, and then also in terms of advancing what I call Jewish feminism. In other words, changing the Jewish community and changing Jewish religious life. So what, what, um, how can we explain this discrepancy, the large proportion of Jewish women involved in, um, certainly in the in second wave feminist movement? Again, I think there, there are multiple factors, some of which are structural. By by the 1960s, for quite a few decades, Jewish women have been among the best educated women in the United States. Their their path to the the immigrant generation and the 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 way the immigrants raised their children, their path to success was to educate their children. And of course, the push was to educate their sons, but also daughters ended up getting extraordinarily fine educations. And honestly, I think as somebody who's spent my entire life teaching in college, I think college teaches wonderful skills that social movements need. It teaches you how to write. It teaches how to think. teaches how to get the word out. teaches how to speak. So Jewish women were, in a sense, poised because of those educations to take advantage, to, to be propelled forward in leadership in the um, in the second wave of American feminism. And the names are, you know, De- Betty Friedan, of course, um, the historian Gerda Lerner, who advocated for Women's History Month. But there's so many other names that, that jump out that I actually had a hard time choosing the few that I would be able to mention in this book. Um, so I think that's one, I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is that because of that long history of involvement in in various kinds of social activist movements, for Jewish women to become involved in the feminist movement was an extension of earlier commitments to social justice. Great. Thank you for that. Um, In your book, you highlight several paradoxes, um, and one of them being how Jewish women conformed to and subverted in different ways gender norms. Um, throughout American history. So can you maybe 
unpack that for for us? How have how have Jewish women conform, simultaneously conformed and subverted gender norms? A great example of that is, comes from several of the women who I write about who were featured in the press in the 1920s and the 1930s because of their business skills. So they become heads of major um, industries. One actually imports, um, it says she imports fine papers. It turns out when I looked at it, she actually was importing cigarette papers um, from France after her husband died. And they were so careful in those articles always to pay lip service, even as they're heading these industries, they're paying lip service to women's traditional roles. And they had to do that. They're subverting the role in their own personhood. But when they say that, and one of them says something along the lines of, you know, everything that a woman does to succeed in business or professional life advances women in the home, she's clearly paying lip service to the role that she has broken with because she has to do that to conform to the conventions of the day. One of the things we always have to remember is that women are constrained by the roles that society sets for their particular social class. Sometimes they can break with them, but the majority of women aren't pioneers and aren't going to be able to break those roles. So they act within the constraints framed around them but they, but by thinking differently or carefully acting differently, they might subvert those roles. Right. Um, another paradox that you've mentioned throughout the book, um, that's sort of teased out throughout the book, really, is how Jewish women were a part of America's America's women broadly, um, while same while simultaneously remaining distinct and apart. Um, so can you, again, elaborate on this paradox that American Jewish women faced? Absolutely. I think the first, thing, the first thing to say is that America's Jewish women are an extraordinarily diverse group of women. There, there are women for whom Judaism, with its rituals and its Sabbaths and its holidays and its organizations and being embedded in the Jewish community, for these women, Judaism defines who they are. For other Jewish women, Judaism might be less salient, but Jewishness, uh, the the everyday experience of what it meant to be a Jew, deeply defined their lives. It affected who they married, the kind of education they got, where they lived, the foods they cooked in their kitchens. Still, for other Jewish women, being a Jew was either inconsequential or something that actually they completely tried to distance themselves from. But in the end, they were never able to do that. There's um, somebody once quipped that uh, if you think you can be a little bit Jewish, you think you can be a little bit pregnant. And so for 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 these women, um, they no, no matter where they stood on the spectrum of being a Jew, they were a part of America's women. Um, therefore, when I write about it, birth rates, for example, among American women or life expectancy, I embed them in that. Yet nevertheless, by and large, something made them stand apart. Whether they, they deliberately chose it, as for those, for example, who embed Judaism at the core of their lives, or those who every once in a while bumped up against the fact that because they were a Jew, it affected the neighborhood they wanted to move into or, um, or the, you know, the schools they were able to go to. 
Um, related to this um, is the notion of becoming American, right? And you you, tr- you tease this out throughout the book where when whether it's a, Ger- a German Jewish immigrant or an Eastern European um, immigrant comes, there's this sort of pressure or an, and desire to become American while for some folks, maybe not for everybody, but for some folks, um, simultaneously maintaining a connection to Judaism or Jewishness in some way. Um, so how did that affect Jewish women's experience in, in the United States, that paradox of to become right. American? Because the Jewish community was, for much of its existence, primarily an immigrant community, for, um, from the 1820s to the 1930s, the majority of American Jews were immigrants. So becoming American was a major theme of the American Jewish experience. And it affected them. The immigrant generation had always would have a foot essentially in both worlds. They, they came from a different world, depending on the age they came from. They, when they learned English, it might have been, it would have remained accented English. Some of them might never have learned English. They, um, if they came at a point where they could really stay in the immigrant milieu and continue to speak, for example, Yiddish and live in, you know, the crowded streets of the Lower East Side or other immigrant neighborhoods, they, they would have, you know, absorbed a modicum of English. I'd say that for them, becoming American was, first of all, it, it was about the external trapping. So one of the things that I, I remember talking about is the first thing to go w- were the clothes. They had to adapt to American clothing. Then for observant Jewish women who were married, they might take off their the wig that a traditional married Jewish woman would have worn or the headkerchief that she would have worn and gone about with um, displaying her hair. But not everybody was willing to do that. I've got a photo of my great-grandmother it's hanging on the wall of my dining room, and she's, I'd say she's about 50, 60 in that image, in that picture, and she's wearing a shaitel. She's wearing the wig married Jewish women wore. And that would, that would have marked her in America as old-fashioned. Um, then to become an American, you would have to get a certain amount of education. And um, the, Jew- the Jewish immigrant women went to night school. They went to learn English. They went to study citizenship. They went to acquire skills that might help them get better jobs. Um so becoming American was always a process of moving into um, the American world. Mm. Um, how did Jewish women experience anti-Semitism differently than Jewish men? And how did that affect their experience in throughout American Jewish history? That's such an interesting question. I think, I think they definitely experienced anti-Semitism sometimes differently. One of the things that that really struck me in my research was I would read about Jewish women writing about anti-Semitism through the prism of their children. So their children would come, yeah, their children would come home from school and somebody would have said something to the child. Or um, there's one letter that I, I, or an article that I write about where um, a mother is writing about her daughter wanted to go on a vacation with a friend and she couldn't because the hotel wrote her and this is in the 1940s, the hotel said she wouldn't find the right company there for her. And of course, we know that hotels were restricted then. Her son wanted to be an engineer, but the opportunities for him to get into a school that would have offered him an engineering degree were limited. And then and then he might not have been able to find a job because there were many places that wouldn't hire 
Jews back then. So she was, the pain came through the, the experience of the family. And I think that's somewhat more than the experience of, of the men, because the women that I'm writing about, the mothers would have been at home when their children came home from school. Mm, that's really fascinating. Um, one of the things that you touch on briefly, but I thought was really interesting, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on it's a, a little bit of a specific question, um, is the, uh, the notion of Jewish women um, turning to prostitution during a certain period of time in American Jewish history, and not just prostitution, like prostituting their own bodies, I guess, but also owning brothels and engaging in this in this industry. So can you maybe flesh that out a little bit for us? It, I think this is something that will probably surprise a lot of people, but prostitution is a social problem of the poor. And when I write about Jewish women becoming prostitutes, I write about them in the immigrant communities, especially in, in the teeming immigrant community of the Lower East Side of New York. In the decades surrounding the turn of, of the 20th century was the most densely populated um, neighborhood in the world. And prostitution was a, a sometime thing for some of them as um, in slack season, as some of the young women have, have left us records telling us that they, you know, when they, when they couldn't live on $5 a week, they turned to prostitution. And then of course, for others, it became a big business. And we have Polly Adler was a, a well-known madam and she didn't, didn't intend to start out that way. She um, went out on a date with her boss. He raped her on the date. And then when she got pregnant, he fired her. And, and eventually she knew some less than um, ideal gentlemen who started to use her apartment and she ended up procuring for them. And as she wrote in her memoir, she said, you know, there's one business that survives in slack times and that is the whorehouse business. So it was it was a, a, something that um, the Jewish community was deeply concerned about because of, of the, how it made Jews look, um, and also because it has an international dimension. Jews are involved in white slave trade in in Europe in the early twentieth century. But if I was going to write a history of America's Jewish women, I couldn't overlook this subject. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for for Jewish women during this time, were they were they um, disproportionately represented in this industry or not necessarily? I don't think they were disproportionately represented in, in, in this um, uh, sex workers trade, as the historians like to call it. I don't think they were disproportionate because of where I was, because of the neighborhood I was talking about, they would have been disproportionately represented in that neighborhood because of the concentration of, of Jews in that neighborhood. But I don't think they were disproportionately represented. And then the social welfare workers, the the better off well-to-do Jewish women who had come in an earlier era are very proud of claiming that by the 1920s, the number of Jewish women getting arrested for prostitution has significantly declined. And it declined not only because of their social activism, but it declined because the Jewish community um, had begun to rise economically in the United States. Right. Okay. Um, another topic that you broached throughout the book in ver at various points is um, women and Jewish women and abortion um, and their role, not just in advocating for the legalization of abortion, but their experience just trying to get their own abortions. So I'm wondering if you can, if you can unpack this for us and just talk about that I, a little bit. I had to talk about abortion because I, I, and the way I had to talk about 
prostitution because these are female experiences. And, and what I was interested in doing was unpacking them in terms of the experiences that Jewish women had. And again, here in the, until the end of World War II, although abortion was illegal in the United States, by and large, abortion was widely accepted and, frankly, in the immigrant world, was considered one of the chief methods of birth controls. One of the women I, I talk about ha, um, had 14 abortions, and the only reason she had her third child was because the neighborhood abortionist, who was a physician, wouldn't give her an abortion, another abortion, because he, he said it wouldn't endanger her life. And her daughter, who writes about this, says that that wasn't even the neighborhood record. So people knew that abortion was something that was available. If you were of the right social class, you could get your abortion done legally in a hospital. After World War II, when there's a crackdown during the Cold War era on crime in general, abortion becomes... Um, not, not only something that, that is illegal, but now something that is, is actually very dangerous for physicians and other people to perform. And so that's when you get this spade of sort of the backdoor and the illegal abortions. And, um, and, and I, I, for example, talk about someone who the doctor says, you know, if you were young and single, I might've, I might've given you this abortion, but because you're married and you have a husband, I can't risk it. And, but that didn't make this woman who already had two children any less desperate. And then abortion becomes, then Jewish women become very involved in the abortion issue because it's a Jewish woman, um, uh, Sherry uh, Finkbein, who had in the 1960s um, had taken thalidomide, a drug that, uh, while she was pregnant, a drug that then um, shortly after she took it, became clear that it was producing terrible birth defects. Her doctor wanted her to have an abortion, a therapeutic abortion, and the hospital board was afraid of the of being um, charged with criminal proceedings if they gave her an abortion. And because she had resources and she was on TV's romper room, she was able to go out of the country to get her abortion, but then came back and became one of the pivotal figures behind the drive for abortion rights. And then, and here becomes another kind of social justice cause that Jewish women by and large take up. Right. Um, I'm going to shift our conversation a little bit. Um, Throughout the book, well, of course, we know that Jewish women didn't just live in New York City, for example, or in these hubs of, of uh, where there are thriving Jewish communities. So, what, But what can we learn about the lives and experiences of Jewish women who lived outside of these um, thriving Jewish communities, which you try to touch on, which right. you touch on throughout the book? I, we know that Jewish women also settled in, um, across America especially in the 19th century, and ended up settling in communities that then would have been seen as on the frontier. And I, I touch upon them a little bit. We have, again, here's a place where we have sources and we can learn something about, about their lives. But I don't, I, because I was trying to keep the length of the book manageable, I don't, I don't go into their lives in great detail. Yet, to go back to Carolyn Hamlin Spiegel, after her husband dies, she she runs, you know, she's not living in a, ma in a major Jewish community, but she's running a boarding house, a kosher boarding house for Jewish men who are coming over to America who need, who need kosher food in a small community. So 
I, so they, they pop up from time to time, but less so as we move to, towards the 20th century when the vast majority of America's Jews are in major urban settings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, we've talked about this a little bit, but let's unpack it a bit more. Jewish women's working patterns. Um, it's often assumed that throughout certain periods of history, not just Jewish history, but history that women just were housewives. Um, and in some ways, Jewish women did conform to that. Um, and in certain periods, they were they were housewives. Um, but many times, Jewish women worked outside the home, um, sometimes unpaid, but they worked. So let's, can we unpack um, the history of Jewish women work, unpaid, un, unpaid labor, and um, how this maybe differed from other women in, in the U.S.? I, I'm not so sure about the extent to which it would have differed from other American women, partly because we don't know that story. But one of the things that really struck me, and maybe it is distinctive because of, of Jews where they fall kind of socially and economically in the United States, is I was so struck by the uh, by Jewish women in the workforce who were essentially invisible in the workforce. So for example, the the ninth, the quintessential nineteenth century American Jewish experience in in the middle decades of the nineteenth century was the man who comes over from somewhere in Germany or Hungary and he has a pack on his back and he's a peddler and after a while he accumulates a little bit of capital and he wants to establish a store and these are those stores in back to your earlier question that are dotting the small towns across the south and the midwest and the and the west but if he wants to run a store he's got to have a wife because he needs he needs somebody to be at the counter while he's out gathering the goods or maybe she's going to be in the back in the kitchen and she's going to be cooking things to sell up, up front so those mom and pop shops and they and the they're the Jew, they're called the Jew stores in the towns on the main streets in the south and the west. But then when we get to the immigrant days, the East European immigrant days of the mom and pop shops, these are family enterprises, family businesses, and no one got paid. They the income that comes in sustains the family. And so that's one place where Jewish women were working, but they, they here again is one of those places where they kind of subvert the roles because Jewish women say, but they're not working because they're at home, because they lived above the store or behind the store. So they could mind the baby while they were also tending the counter. And I think that's, that's a very, very important way in which they were contributing economically. And then you get the same kind of thing when you get to um, the the men who are who become professionals, the the doctors and the dentists, for example. And it's their wives who are making the appointments and setting the you know manning the front counter and dealing with um, with the patients. So they were there, there's this kind of deep tradition of unpaid labor. An unpaid female labor. And then, of course, Jewish women also um, ultimately do enter the workforce in very significant ways, um, especially in the wake of second wave feminism. But that opens the doors for American women, not just for America's Jewish women, but because America's Jewish women were well educated, they were poised to take advantage of that access in striking ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another um, major part of, of Jewish women's lives was managing their house, right? Managing their household. And um, at different periods in, in, in history, um, and you highlight this, especially with the Great Depression, but at other 
times two when immigrants first arrive and they're um, a bit more strapped for cash, you sort of outline how how women um, really contributed and helped and managed the finances of their homes. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit more, how women, the role that Jewish mothers assumed when, um, in, when they were facing dire financial situations? For, for the women whether they were helping out in the family business or they, they were well enough off that they could simply um, manage the household and, and stay home. But their primary job was to take care of that household and sustain their families. And whenever anything would have threatened that, um, they, they became, their, their activism spills out once again. So I'll, I'll give you um, a couple of examples. What, uh, the one that I write about that's quite well known is that in May of 1902, when the price of kosher meat soared from 12 cents a pound to 18 cents a pound, Jewish women in New York broke into butcher shops. Um, threw, they went on strike. They threw the meat out on the streets. They doused it with kerosene so nobody could eat it. And they would get arrested because of their violence, but they were calling for a kosher meat boycott across the city. And kosher meat boycotts ultimately spread to other cities. And one woman who got arrested turned to the judge and she said, we're not rioting. Only see how thin our children are. And that encapsulates that that message that again here is a mother and what's her job she has to take care of her family and that meant that every single penny mattered and counted and um, we see the same thing emerging subsequently in rent strikes um, first during uh, even, even first first decade of the 20th century and then especially again when rent prices go up during a short housing shortage during World War One, and then again in the 1930s. And Jewish women are activists in, in these rent strikes as the landlords are raising the rents and they can't afford to stay any longer. And they, they, they stand at the top of the stairs with pots of boiling water when the cops try to come up to take the furniture out of somebody who's being evicted from their house. They were determined that there should be justice done in their neighborhoods um, and that whenever there was some kind of prouse gouging, they were going to stand against it. Um, and in these protests, the kosher meat boycott, um, rent strikes, and also you mentioned you talk extensively about um, the garment industry. Um, what, what was the role of men in these, in these strikes? Did they play any role or was it really a woman's space, these, these protests? The, the food protests were pretty much a women's space. The rent, the rent strikes were certainly um, uh, gender, men and women together. And, and of course, the labor movement, the labor movement, the story is a gendered story because the, the um, garment industry where the Jews were working was a gendered industry. So women in the garment industry made shirtwaists and kimonos and men made cloaks and suits. So I wrote, I write about, many have written about the great labor strike in the shirtwaist um, industry, the uprising of the 20,000 in 1909. I did not write about the men's strike that follows, the cloakmaker's strike that follows in 1910 because of the way in which the industry was gendered and also because of the experiences women had 
in that industry where they dealt with things like sexual harassment, which of course was a problem that then had no name, um, and where they dealt with also some kind of dismissive attitude on the part of the men that who felt there was no point in organizing female labor um, garment workers, no point in organizing them, because they were going to get married and then they were going to leave the workforce anyway. But as we know, they didn't leave the workforce. They just worked in a different way. Um, you mentioned sexual harassment. Can you um, elaborate a little bit more on on that ex- that on Jewish women's experience with sexual harassment? And you mentioned the, the the phenomenon that had no name at the time, and and sort of what what if if they did anything and what they did about, about it. What what was so surprising, and of course, I, I wrote I, I finished this manuscript before the Me Too movement broke. But what was so surprising to me, although it shouldn't have been, is how often in the sources. I, p- women would be talking about what they had experienced um, that we would describe as either sexual misconduct or sex- sexual harassment. Um, women who were who were denied the right title in their jobs, women who who were denied jobs because they were given to men, but then also the the very very real threat of sexual violence. And again, here's one of those places where oral histories teased out a story that somebody might not have written. And one of the oral histories that I use, a a, a woman, you know, she's, she's, when she's doing this oral history, she's in her seventies. She's remembering with pain what happened in her twenties when her boss um, tried to, you know, accost her. And she, and she said she fled from his office only with the help of somebody else who was there. So I don't know exactly how she got out of the office. She goes to him the next morning. She says to him, if you ever do that again, I'm going to tell somebody. And he says, so what? Nobody will believe you. And even if they do, nobody will care because we didn't have that kind of moment. So I think it's, I think it's actually really valuable to understand the, that, that, that exp- the way in which that experience was pervasive in an earlier era. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to shift our conversation slightly again um, and to talking about Judaism. So you mentioned that, um, well, Jewish women are incredibly diverse. Some of them were observant, some of them were not observant at all. Um, and they experienced, and they, some were, like I, like I mentioned, religious and some just experienced Jewishness. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on how, or on the role that Jewish women assumed in maintaining Judaism? In, in the United States? Absolutely. Because Judaism has two kind of centers. There's the synagogue, which was always the man's purview, and there's the home, which was always the women's purview. Jewish women have historically across time played a powerful role in the maintenance of Judaism because they, in their homes, they have um, traditionally they would keep a kosher kitchen. The, many of the rituals and celebrations take place in the home. We're approaching Passover. The center of Passover takes place in the home. But in, in America and in the modern period, Jewish women demanded an increased presence and role in the synagogue. And that's one of the places where you see First, the synagogue, the sisterhoods in the synagogue emerging um, and making the synagogue a social center for the Jewish community, but also eventually Jewish women demanding that they have um, a voice and a place in the religious aspect of the synagogue. So synagogues in America are, are 
very diverse institutions. They have schools, they have social halls, they have sanctuaries. And Jewish women began to demand that they also have a place inside the sanctuary. In, in, um, in the conservative denomination of American Judaism, that meant not being confined to a balcony, but sitting next to their husbands. In Reformed Judaism and also conservative Judaism, it eventually meant first a sisterhood Sabbath, um, uh, recognizing the accomplishments of the sisterhood, a day when the women could address the congregation from the, um, it, it's called a bima, the, the set the stage in the front of the sanctuary. And then eventually in the long battle for women's ordination. Um, you trace the history of women's ordination briefly in this book, but also in um, your previous book, Women Who Would Be Rabbis. Um, can you unpack that for us? It's interesting because that was a century-long struggle, um, really, to, to attain, um, to be able to become rabbi. So can you maybe unpack that and, and talk a little bit about the women who sort of um, allowed for or like forged the path um, for women to become rabbis? I'd be happy to. In this book, I couldn't talk about it extensively because I was trying to keep this book under a manageable length. But I, as you said, in my book, Women Who Would Be Rabbis, A History of Women's Ordination, I really showed the way in which this question first emerged in American life in 1889 when a writer named Mary Cohn wrote on the front page of the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent, could not our women be ministers? Ministers in the 19th century was the polite code word for rabbi. And I showed how that question cycled across American Jewry until ultimately was resolved successfully, first in the favor of women's ordination, first in the reform movement in 1972, when Rabbi Sally Prezam was ordained in the conservative movement in 1985, when um, uh, Rabbi Amy Eilberg was ordained. And at the end of the book, I actually asked the question, will there be Orthodox women rabbis? And, um, and I, I borrowed that from the founder of Orthodox Jewish Feminism, Blue Greenberg. And today there are Orthodox women who function as rabbis, um, a few even with that particular title. So I showed this long history but what was always striking to me about the history and what really propelled me to write that book is every, every couple of years or every decade, somebody else would say, I want to be a rabbi. And she would have no idea that anyone had ever said it before. And she would have no idea that she was making virtually the same arguments in terms of Jewish law, in terms of societal roles that somebody before her had made. And that's what was so striking. In 1889, in this little newspaper article, Mary Cohn lays out almost every single one of the arguments in favor of women's ordination that Sally Prezand would have to be laying out nearly a century later. So what, what I, I showed in that book is how lacking historical consciousness, not having a memory of the past to stand on, had tremendously disadvantaged Jewish women. And in fact, all women, because this is the argument the great historian Gerda Lerner made. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple more questions for you. One is a little bit more um, broad. Um, what exactly can we learn about Jewish women's 
um, experience in the United States, as your title sort of suggests, from colonial times to today. What is unique or what can we learn about about women and Jewish women through an examination of Jewish women's experience? I, I think... I think the first thing that we learn is that Jewish women had a distinctive history. So I don't tell this story in in the book, but I'll tell it, I'll tell it here. When I was a, when I was a fairly young um, assistant professor, I met a very well-known women's historian and I happened to know that she was Jewish. I also knew that she had pretty much ignored Jewish women and some work that she had done where I think Jewish women should have figured. And I told her at that time, I think I was working on the book that became um, Women Who Would Be Rabbis. And I said, you know, I'm going to write about America, American Jewish women's history. And she snapped back that there's no such thing. And I was really taken aback because the truth is, is that in, in these kind of broad sweeping overviews of women's history, Jewish women show up in the labor movement they show up a little bit, but not necessarily so much as Jews and the feminist movement. And these histories that try to be so inclusive of ethnicity and race and class just totally ignore Jewish women. So I think the most important thing that I've done is to prove that Jewish women have a distinctive history. What accounts for that exclusion, do you think? I think, first of all, I think I think it's impossible to include every single ethnic group. Um, number one, number two, often the people who are are writing see Jews as a religion, and therefore they they have to be writing about religion. So they have to be writing about Protestants and Catholics before they're going to include Jews. And these histories tend to focus more on ethnicity. But I don't see Jews as just a religion. I see Jews as an ethnic group. Right, exactly. Um, so we've taken up quite a bit of your time this morning, um, and we're reaching the end of the interview, but I have one final question for you. Can you share with us what you're working on next? Um, wow, that's tough. I, uh, I, I'm thinking, I, I'll tell you, it's not so much what I'm working on, it's what I've been thinking about and what I've been doing a little bit of speaking, a little bit of writing about, and unfortunately, it's anti-Semitism. It, we are being um, just hit from all sides with anti-Semitism in American life today, obviously also globally. But I have been, I, I wrote a, a short op-ed for the Washington Post about the long history of American anti-Semitism. And of course, it, it comes out of what I wrote in the book. It comes out of what, a, what I teach. I think people don't have the historical background to understand what context to, I'm sorry, to contextualize what we are experiencing today with anti-Semitism in American life, but I'm not sure how far I'll go with it. Yeah, that's fair. Well, it's certainly in our times with, we see, we're seeing a, a stark rise in um, anti-Semitism and hate crimes in general. So work on anti-Semitism is certainly, it's always necessary, but it feels, um, it feels more necessary um, in our precarious times, I, w- I would say. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your fascinating research. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Um, the book, America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today, is, um, is out now, and I absolutely recommend it. Thank you so much, Pamela. I really appreciate your time. <laughs>